0: Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome,
1: Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast.
0: Following the American airstrike which killed Iranian General Qasem Soleimani, you'll be hearing Dr. Zudi Jasser. He's a former United States Navy lieutenant commander. He's Muslim and author of Battle for the Soul of Islam. From Royal Military College... In Kingston, Professor Ali Dizboni, he was born and raised in Iran and he'll talk to us about what life is like in that country under the regime. Tom Quiggin is one of Canada's leading experts on terrorism, he's court certified, and he will speak to the attack by the Americans as well as Canadian citizen Jack Letts. The story now is that he married an ISIS leader's daughter. His father John was on my program three times and we'll put this together for you because Jack Letts could wind up in Canada. The only citizenship he has left is Canadian. As well, Doug Schweitzer, the Alberta Justice Minister, confirming that Alberta will battle Trudeau on the carbon tax and former B.C. Premier Ujjal Desange on national unity in this country. How frayed is national unity? Some of what you'll hear on the podcast this time. With us is Dr. Zudi Jasser. I always appreciate speaking with Dr. Jasser, former United States Navy Lieutenant Commander. He's the founder of the American Islamic Forum for Democracy, nuclear, c- nuclear cardiologist, and former president of the Arizona Medical Association. And uh, his book is Battle for the Soul of Islam. Zudi, thank you very much uh, for the time. And what's the perspective that you have of this entire issue at this time on, on Sunday? It's been almost, what, 48 hours. What, what are you seeing? What, what's your concern?
2: Well, I have to tell you, I'm I'm elated. You know, as a, as an American Muslim, not only or as a Syrian Muslim, uh, you know, the the terror network of uh, of Qasem Soleimani dwarfs dwarfs makes uh, Osama bin Laden and uh, uh, Abu Bakr al Baghdadi look like little gangsters uh, compared to the uh, uh, state treasury of Iran, uh, tens of thousands of troops that this guy deployed into Iraq and to Syria and elsewhere. Uh, you could arguably say that Assad would not be around today had it not been for the terror network of Soleimani with Hezbollah and the troops of the IRGC. And you know, for all the hand wringing happening in Washington this week, uh because of partisan obsessions, uh they should have done that when the Trump administration identified the IRGC as a terror organization six, seven months ago. That's when the debate should have happened. Because once they were identified as a terror organization, it's done. Uh what's the difference between uh Soleimani and Bin Laden or the uh head of Hamas or any terror organization? So uh, I, he doesn't need a authorization of uh, military force uh, from the Congress to do this. It's a terror organization. And uh, ultimately, it's just simply blind partisan politics.
0: Uh, the way that Soleimani is being described by some is, is to me, quite amazing. Uh, we know, for example, as you said, the federal government, Washington in Washington, the U.S. government has uh, declared the Revolutionary Guard Corps to be a, a terrorist organization in Canada the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps Cods Force, which was commanded by Soleimani, has been uh, also defined as a terrorist organization. And yet, I think it was the Washington Post, wasn't it, who they wrote something about Soleimani being a revered general? I mean, you you get, I I look at these stories and I wonder, is anybody paying attention?
2: It's—it's Not only is anybody paying attention, It's the narrative where they they continue to get themselves onto a track in a train that's headed towards ultimately support of theocracy, support of governments that don't share our values. And uh, um, just because of their animus uh, against uh, the conservatives and Republicans, uh, when things are done right, that any rational human being, any sentient human being in Syria or the Middle East, would say this is a good day I mean our families and and tens of thousands of families are handing out sweets cheering in Damascus and Aleppo because they know that Assad is simply a a ophthalmologist who's running a government the military regime in Syria and and the the reason Iraq has has needed now Revolution 2.0 because it's it's, it's devolving into a, a client state of Iran is because of Soleimani and his network. So this did more. You can't sort of recreate Soleimani's network overnight. You can't just put in a new guy, and he's going to have the aura of what this guy had feared throughout the Shia crescent from Iraq to Syria and Lebanon. Uh, So it it just doesn't make sense. And at some point it sort of exposes the left in Washington as really not about what's right morally, globally, but really simply about partisan uh, uh, brinksmanship.
0: I have received a few emails pointing to the fact that uh, neither George Bush nor Barack Obama took steps to eliminate Soleimani. And uh, to one person I replied, but Mr. Obama did declare a red line in Syria that if it was crossed, like chemical tax, that the United States would take action. Well, the red line was crossed with impunity by Soleimani and by Assad, and Obama did nothing. So I don't know that we can point to Obama or George Bush as being watershed decision-makers
2: and and Roy just a few days ago just a week ago our embassy was attacked not as a protest they keep calling it a protest that was not a protest that was acts of terror against American citizens against our embassy that was led by Soleimani and I think once the intelligence showed that it was Soleimani that directed and Mukendis that also was killed in this uh, his uh, second-in-command uh, there's no doubt that we had to respond, so it wasn't just the contractor that was killed two weeks ago. it wasn't just uh, 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 their response uh, an attack. it is uh, the attack on our embassy needed a response. Uh, Obama may not have responded like he did in Libya with Benghazi, but at the end of the day, this is a different administration
0: um, How much of it had to do with the attack on the on the embassy specifically was the plan in place to take out Soleimani? Prior to that, I mean Bush and uh, not Bush, uh, President Trump and, uh, and Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, talk about there having been a plan in place for Soleimani was going to create mayhem and many people were going to lose their lives. Was he going to die regardless, uh, or did the embassy issue just take it over the top? Were there just memories of Tehran in 1979, which the administration wasn't willing to accept?
2: Well, you have to you have to imagine that the threat matrix, as they looked at the IRGC navigating uh, calls for attacks in uh, Baghdad against their embassy and elsewhere, uh, the DoD uh, narrative that came out right after they declared credit for uh, targeting uh, Soleimani basically said that they thought they knew and had intelligence that there were further threats and attacks coming out. You don't simply target with a drone somebody who just lands at an airport uh, uh, without having had prior intelligence that uh, we needed to follow him and uh, they uh, uh, had that in the operational matrix if you will so i don't know when it was planned uh, but the bottom line is is that they knew that if you want to do something that's not appeasement that's going to be seen As a a credible threat from the United States you take out the top of the IRGC and you send a message that this we mean business and we need to stop uh, their uh, continued poking of the United States and Western interests.
0: So what happens now domestically as far as the government of the United States is concerned? I'm talking about the Republicans and the Democrats. The Democratic Party is very directly criticizing uh, the, the president for taking the action that he's taken Uh, It's a presidential election year. The criticism will only ramp up, don't you think? And what does this do to presenting a a unified United States to the rest of the world?
2: Well, I think you have to separate the swamp from the the American people. I think the American people are smart enough to know that uh, the the president uh, does not uh, target somebody without uh, having a, yes, he might call the shot, but at the end of the day, the entire DOD had to be involved in making sure that this was an operation that was smart uh, that was strategically wise, and the Joint Chiefs agreed to have it happen. Uh, so That's number one. Number two, the, the Democrats have to start saying, are they going to be the party of conspiracy theories, where Ilhan Omar is tweeting that this was simply done because of his fear of impeachment, or are they going to be the party of rational uh, uh, center-type uh, politics? Because if they continue to be this extremist far-left, where you have Bernie Sanders and others using the talking points of Russia and others that's not going to be a party that's going to do anything successful in the ballot box.
0: Let me call on your experience as a military man. Are you concerned about an actual active identifiable shooting war?
2: Uh, Listen, I think bottom line is as my gut tells me it's going to continue with the back and forth the way it's been. Iran cannot afford to get into a major conflict with Iran. Its economy is, is on the brink of collapse. They have, uh, major uh, uh, economic constraints, and not to mention revolution with, with uh, uh, demonstrations throughout Iran, so they can't afford it. They will continue to do the chest thumping. Just uh, you know, we just saw an attack yesterday in Kenya from Al Shabab. Who knows if they were uh, linked to that? So there will be uh, certainly increased risk throughout the world. But that risk has always been there. To say that we are going to be worried about that and continuing to contain them at their most extremes, which is what Soleimani represented was a containment operation, I think that's the way it's going to continue. I think the fear of war, not only does that not make sense for Iran right now at all economically and strategically, they don't want to go toe-to-toe with the United States military, but secondly, um, President Trump is not going to go to war with Iran that's not his uh, he does not come from that campaign mentality and uh, certainly you can't see him doing that we may have to pull out more completely from Iraq which uh, I think we're probably going to see in the next few months.
0: All right. Zudi, good talking to you, thank you for the time.
2: Thanks, thanks Roy.
0: Dr. Zudi Jasser, founder of the American Islamic Forum for Democracy and author for the Battle of the Soul of Islam and former United States Navy Lieutenant Commander. Professor Ali Dizboni of the Royal Military College in Canada Canada and uh, Queen's University Center for International and Defense Policy, also a commentator on the Middle East politics and Canadian foreign policy in the region, joins us. He was born and grew up in in Iran. And, uh, Professor, thank you very much for the time. What is your view of the U.S. military action? Uh, thank you. Yeah,
3: it is, uh, as you said in your introduction, it is like a declaration of war, not only against Iran, but also against Iraq, because the two high-rank uh, military generals and, and the leaders were involved and killed. So that's it, and also very unexpected in the context of um, agreements that the U.S. government had with the Iraqi government in terms of opera- operation against high rank generals and stuff like that so it could indicate or it indicates really a shift in uh, Donald Trump government policy towards uh, Iranian in terms of not really a shift but also a huge escal- escalation in terms of uh, aggravation of maximum pressure against Iranian regime uh, so plus economic war now We are entering a kind of, not just asymmetric, but also, um, let's say, moving toward military confrontation between the two countries.
0: So is that what you're expecting, that there will be an actual military confrontation, perhaps on the water in the uh, Straits of Hormuz?
3: Listen, I don't trust very 100 percent the r- rationality <laughs> of politicians on both sides so i would say it is possible this is not what they want to happen but in the logic of escalation if stuff happens as you know as um Clausewitz used to say the, the the frictions and unpredictability of wars and also i don't know if you hear just the news came out from iran that Iran is saying that it would no longer observe limitation on its capacity for enrichment. I saw that. Exactly. So that could be counted as a symbolic gesture immediately after the kind of a, 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 a counter action to U.S. killing uh, Qasem Soleimani and uh, Mohandes Abu Mahdi Mohandes, and also in conjunction with the Iraqi parliament decision today. Uh, As asking uh, foreign forces, including U.S., to leave Iraqi territory and to respect Iraqi sovereignty. So these two movements, you know, could be, uh, developments could be considered somehow soothe Iranian leaders' uh, thirst and desire for revenge.
0: Professor, let me ask you about what's going on inside Iran. Here's a story from uh, the New York Times, December 3rd. Of last year so a few weeks ago less than a month. Iran is experiencing its deadliest political unrest since the Islamic revolution 40 years ago with at least 180 people killed and possibly hundreds more as angry protests have been smothered in a government crackdown of unbridled force. In many places security forces responded by opening fire on unarmed protesters, largely unemployed or low-income young men between the ages of 19 and 26 According to witnesses and accounts of the videos in the southwest city of I think it's Mashhar, alone witnesses and medical personnel said Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps members surrounded shot and killed 40 to 100 demonstrators mostly unarmed young men in a march where they had sought or a march where they had sought refuge what's going on inside the country
3: um I think, again, is, is the, the Iranian regime tries to, to, to portray it as a, as a, as a foreign-orchestrated uh, domestic unrest, but to be objective, i got to say that this is really the, the, the U.S. maximum pressure on Iran economically is working and is really biting hard. It is the kind of pressure that we saw in 2011 pushed Iranian to come to negotiation table. So US government is searching for the same reflex this time also. So Iranian would bow and come to the negotiation table. You're totally right. Yeah, in the region of Mahshar and elsewhere. It's 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 the pressure. This this the killing of general may bring Iranian and political factions, you know, united for a while, but the reality gonna kick in in weeks and months in terms of economy and and, and um and the pressure and it is something Iranian people living through since 1979 Iran Iraq war US sanctions international isolations tension with Europe uh, the, the the nuclear file i think the threshold of Iranian population tolerance and patience is really getting very thin and to its end so uh, Iranian regime is very Uh, conscious of this fact. And that also has an impact on its capacity for military counteraction against U.S. forces in the region.
0: Well, unsteady times, and uh, who knows where this is going? Nobody really knows, specifically or directly, but uh, we're all in it um, for the ride, I I guess. We're all going to be uh, either observing or uh, hopefully just observing, and I hope cooler heads prevail, but, uh, Professor, thank you so much, and I hope you'll come back on the program. Thank you. My pleasure. Have thank a great day, sir. Thank you. Bye-bye. There's uh, Professor Ali Desboni from the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University Centre for International and Defence Policy. Minister, as of uh, earlier this week, Wednesday, Albertans began to pay the carbon tax forced on the province by the Trudeau government. How central to the election of your government in Alberta was the pushback against the federal government's imposition of the carbon tax on Albertans?
4: Uh, It was a big, big issue in the last provincial election campaign, but not just once, but twice in the last year, Albertans voted overwhelmingly for governments that would change and get rid of the carbon tax. They voted for the Federal Conservative Party, and they also voted for the United Conservative Party provincially. Bill number one for us was the Carbon Tax Repeal Act. We got that done for Albertans. We repealed the carbon tax provincially that the NDP brought in, and then we also launched a court challenge as well to challenge the federal government's imposition of a carbon tax here in Alberta. Albertans simply just don't accept the carbon tax as the path forward.
0: What are the essentials of Alberta's court case against the Trudeau government's carbon tax? And and does what Alberta's doing essentially mirror what Saskatchewan has done, what Ontario is doing?
4: Well, we've benefited from both Saskatchewan and Ontario taking the lead on these cases to have our own case here in Alberta heard by the Court of Appeal last month. And it really builds on the fact that Peter Lougheed, one of the former premiers of Alberta, one of the best premiers this province has ever had, fought hard when the Constitution was negotiated to make sure that the development of natural resources fell within provincial jurisdiction. So we're standing up to fight for our province's future, to fight for how our Constitution was formed. What the federal government is trying to do right now is effectively amend the Constitution. And I think that's why you're seeing Quebec stand up, Quebec standing with us at the Supreme Court to push back against Ottawa. Even though Ottawa's recognized their regime, they're saying, no, this is provincial jurisdiction. We control our own destiny. And that's what Alberta's fighting for as well.
0: Now The carbon tax is $20 per ton of carbon emitted for 2020 and then rising to $30 per ton in 2021. What does that mean to the average Albertan? What are you hearing from the average Albertan about this?
4: Well, you know, I filled up at the gas tank on December 31st, and there was a bit of a line up there. Uh, And I had a chance to talk to some folks, and they were grumbling, saying, you know what, tomorrow it's going up, and this isn't really the direction that they want to go. And and Alberta's done its part. I mean, we've invested a ton of uh, time and resources in technology uh, we've you know, been a leader in this front, focusing on major emitters. We think that's where the focus should be, working to develop technology with our oil and gas companies. They've developed amazing technologies that can be adopted around the world. Technology is how we, uh, is how we tackle climate change.
0: Do you get a sense that Mr. Trudeau, Mr. Morneau, and uh, the federal liberals are using the province of Alberta to try to make a point to the rest of the country and maybe make a point to the world about how tough they are?
4: Well, we are right now. It says, my sense is that we're a nation divided right now. We should be working together. We, I mean, we have an amazing story to tell. We can actually impact global emissions. They're focused so much on global climate change, but they want to put Alberta... Sorry, They want to put Canada in a big dome and not focus on the globe. We can help global emissions, working hand-in-hand hand to get our clean natural gas to international markets, displacing coal in China and India. We could do our part and be constructive and have job creation going. That's why the Albertans are so frustrated, because we see this. We, you know, we develop these resources. We're stewards of the land, and yet we see, seem to have a government in Ottawa that doesn't want to work with us. And that's what we look at. That's what we're looking for. We want to be partners. That's why a whole team of us went to Ottawa recently to fight for a fair deal for our province. We want to work with the federal government and help explain our position.
0: Are they willing to work with you? You
4: know what? It's you know early trust, but verify, but don't trust that much. Is kind of the approach. Uh, we want to see action uh, in right now. We're waiting to see what the federal government wants to do. Uh, we've we've been clear as to what we're looking for, and we'll wait and see how the federal government responds.
0: Minister, there's an argument that comes out of Ottawa, comes out of the, the Liberal government, the Trudeau government, that there's no need for Canadians to worry about the uh, carbon tax because they'll receive a rebate for every penny spent on the tax, and in many cases they argue will receive more money back than they paid. Plus, Mr. Morneau argues individual Canadians are not taxed but carbon-emitting companies are, which is a bit of unfancy footwork, I think. But what what do you say to that?
4: Well, rebates aren't jobs. Uh, we had a study that uh, we did. We submitted this in court that it could cost Alberta up to 16,000 jobs. And that's at the lower numbers here, not this potential $200 carbon tax that the you know, liberals might bring in you know we're we're worried about jobs here in the province of Alberta we already have a job crisis right now this is the wrong direction we've brought in you know, job creation tax cut to have lower corporate taxes to attract business and investment to Alberta we've brought in a red tape reduction act to help lower our red tape in the province to make sure we're the most competitive environment around and this is simply heading in the wrong direction it's trying to make things more difficult to attract investment we have a global market right now, and investment is flowing to the United States. It's flowing to other markets, not Canada. We want to attract our investment here. Global demand keeps going up for oil and gas, and we should be a part of that.
0: What do you say to people who would say that Alberta is heading in the wrong direction? We now know that the well, Mark Carney, the, about to be former governor of the Bank of England, former governor of the Bank of Canada, is uh, going to be a special emissary or envoy for the United Nations on, on climate. And uh, I'm sure Mr. Carney would say that the Jason Kenney government's headed in the wrong direction. What would you say to him, to, uh, to, to Mark Carney?
4: i said say they should come talk to people in rural Alberta right now. I've had the opportunity to tour around this province. These are good people. They're Canadians, just like everyone else across this country. All they want to do is be able to provide for their families like everyone else. And they've built their lives there. They want to be able to continue to do their good work because they know that they are world leaders in doing this responsibly. They want to continue to bring in tankers from Venezuela, Saudi Arabia, other countries. Or do we want to develop resources here in Canada where we know the standards are the highest we have human rights that are the highest. We have environmental standards that are the highest. Why wouldn't we develop that and work together in Canada to get that done? And we can also make our mark internationally to making sure we reduce global emissions by getting our clean natural gas to international markets. That's something that we should be doing together in Canada. That will help build bridges. That will, If you want to build bridges to the West right now, which is, Western alienation is high, you know, help us develop and get our natural gas to international markets. <laughs>
0: Well, it makes absolute sense, of course, to be using our natural resources and our energy for the good of all Canadians, and the opportunity is there, and it's not being maximized. But let me talk to you about coal for just a moment, coal productions. Uh, many Canadians would argue taxing coal out of existence is a good idea. Cleaner air, less pollution, reduced carbon emissions. What do you say to that, Minister? And I believe this is particularly going to affect the agricultural sector in Alberta. Well, talk to us about coal.
4: Well, on the coal front, too, I mean, there, I mean, there's different types of coal. People don't differentiate. I mean, there's metallurgical coal that, again, there's a con, you know, continued demand for steel. There's a continued demand for metallurgical coal. And there's a growth in that area uh, across, you know, in, in Fernie, in the area of British Columbia, where there's a ton of development in that. And we should be working together to make sure we get that to international markets. When it comes to the future of coal as well, Saskatchewan's made big investments to making sure on carbon capture and other technologies around coal, there are areas there where we can be responsible, but I think the biggest thing that we can do, again, and to my earlier point, is getting natural gas, which is far cleaner product to international markets, to displace the use of coal for power generation and other areas. We do have that ability in Canada. That's one of our great advantages is the fact that we have these natural resources, we should be using them, and we should be helping the world uh, in getting that to market.
0: I'll finish with this. You've said that uh, you're committed, your government is committed to uh, to fight this uh, battle, we, against the federal government's imposition of the carbon tax as far as you have to, and I'm sure that'll be before the Supreme Court of Canada, regardless of how the court in uh, in Alberta uh, decides. One side or the other will appeal, and it'll go to the Supreme Court. Is all of this happening because the Trudeau government just doesn't understand western Canada, doesn't understand Alberta, doesn't understand the prairie provinces, or simply doesn't care?
4: Well, you know, I think it's one of those things where we they should work a little bit harder at building bridges with the West. I mean, when we came out to Ottawa, I mean, I haven't personally haven't spent a huge amount of time in Ottawa and, it, and it's very different culturally than I would say Calgary, where my home is. Uh, we have to make sure we continue to try to understand each other, to try and build bridges. And this carbon tax that they've trying to impose on the province of Alberta is just simply is not the path forward. You want to build bridges with the West work with us to get our clean products, to international markets, help us develop our resources. We all we want to do is work. We just want to get people back to work. That's why in the last election we were so successful. Our focus is on the jobs, economy, pipelines. We want to get people working again. Help us get people back to work. And I think you'll see Western alienation uh, die down.
0: Minister, thank you for the time. Good talking to you.
4: My pleasure. Thank you so much.
0: I like to go to the former Premier of British Columbia and former Federal Health Minister, Ujjal Desange for some wise counsel on issues that matter in this country. I uh, I have tremendous respect for Mr. Delsange, and it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, always a pleasure to talk to you, Premier. Thanks for agreeing to come on. Good
5: to be with you. Thanks for your kind words. Well, you've
0: earned, you, you, you've earned that from all of us in Canada. I said to you, I'm going to say to you now on the air what I said off the air. I think if you led a national commission on national unity in this country, if you chaired a national commission on national unity, we'd get a lot done.
5: Thank you. Uh, You know, I I, I was listening to your comments about um, the issues facing Canada, and I was sort of thinking back to the 70s and the 80s. You know, I came to Canada in 1968 from Britain, um, and that was the time um, when uh, we were dealing with high prices in Alberta, oil prices, not low, and and we were uh, dealing with the issue of at what price um, Alberta should sell its oil to the rest of Canada and and what should happen uh, to the money and how it should be divided between the Feds um, and, and the provinces as well as uh, obviously the oil companies. And that was a major crisis. Of course, I was new to Canada, and I didn't pay as much attention. Now when I read back, I mean, it was a very serious issue. And, of course, uh, we had Peter Lougheed and uh, Trudeau Sr. I mean, finally... Um, it, things were resolved, um, but, uh, but the aftertaste of that issue still uh, resides in many people's minds uh, in Alberta. And that's what makes the current uh, scenario um, very, very complex, uh, difficult, and troubling. Um, you have, on the one hand, the tensions in the West. On the other, you have uh, a resurgent um, bloc Quebecois and um and the federal government in the middle or not in the middle depending on what role they play Um, and i think that that you know the world is a a very troubled place right now with what's happening um, in 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 the middle east and the u.s but in canada uh, we have things that we need to worry about
0: yes we do somebody sent me an email not long ago asking why we suddenly have a national unity issue and i wrote back, I said, there's nothing sudden about it. This has been developing, as you just pointed out. This has been developing for some period of time. I was in Alberta at the time of the National Energy Program, for, just for about a year at that time. And I was also right. in Quebec as a young man when the separatist movement really took hold and the Parti Quebecois got right. started. And even now, Premier, I spent nine years in Quebec from uh, 2007 to 2016. And I can tell you, with a significant percentage of the population, if I talk to people on a daily basis, just randomly, There's a significant percentage of the population there. They're still not exactly unhappy with the idea of separating from the rest of Canada.
5: Well, it seems to me, uh, obviously, that's indicated in the number of seats bought Quebecois won, although the leader of uh, BQ has said that uh, that that's not their immediate aim, but that's the long-term aim, and there are... There are lots of people in Quebec who still have that sentiment, and in fact, there are more people in Quebec, in Alberta, that have that sentiment now, and that's the, that's the irony of it. Uh, Alberta has been um, obviously a very strong partner in in the in the you know in, in Canada, and obviously um, they are somewhat concerned that that one that their contribution is not recognised or respected, um, and and two that that they're not being given their due in terms of the returns they should be having and and the difficulties they have, of course, with the pipeline issue um, are are complicating all of that. Mm
0: -hmm. I don't think Canadians fully recognize, mostly, fully recognize just how significantly uh, this national unity issue is going to be playing, how significant a part it's going to be playing on our lives in the not-too-distant future, if it isn't already.
5: it seems to me that this issue is going to continue to brew Mm -hmm. uh, unless we find a resolution to the issue of the carbon tax as well as um, the pipeline uh, in in a satisfactory manner. This issue is going to brew um, uh, not on the back burner, but I think it's going to be on the front burner for the next three or four years. Uh, uh, Whatever the life of this minority government is, um, even if it's four years, I think the issue is going to outlast um, this minority government.
0: Yes. Please hold on. Premier Ujjal Dussange, British Columbia, former premier, also former federal liberal health minister. We're talking about an issue that really matters. And I'll ask, for, uh, I'll ask for the premier's point of view of what's happening globally with this Iran-U.S. crisis in just a minute. But the national unity issue is something that we cannot, cannot, cannot afford to ignore. And I think if too many people think that's ah, no big deal. Well, it is. It is a big deal, and it affects each and every one of us. We also have a prime minister who, just a couple of days after taking office in 2015, said he views Canada as the first world as the world's first post-national state. I still have no idea what Justin Trudeau means by that, other than... Well, why don't you finish the sentence for me? We're with Ujjal Dussange, former premier of British Columbia and former federal health minister, and when we hear uh, the voice of, of Doug Schweitzer, there's uh, Premier, there's almost a, a pleading uh, saying, hey, we can get it done, but listen to us. And I, I'd like to play one other thing for you that he said to me, Premier. Have a listen to this. When I asked him about uh, whether the West was being ignored,
4: and you're in B.C., have a listen. Well, you know, I think it's one of those things where we, we should work a little bit harder at building bridges with the West. I mean, when we came out to Ottawa i mean i have personally haven't spent a huge amount of time in ottawa and, it, and it's very different culturally than I would say calgary where my home is uh, we have to make sure we continue to try to understand each other to try and build bridges and this carbon tax that they've tried to impose on the province of alberta is just simply is not the path forward you want to build bridges with the west work with us to get our clean products to international markets help us develop our resources we all we want to do is work we just want to get people back to work that's why in the last election we're so successful. Our focus is on the jobs, economy, pipelines. We want to get people working again, help us get people back to work. And I think you'll see Western alienation uh, die down.
0: Premier Dasanj, what are you hearing when you hear the Alberta Justice Minister say that? What are you I'm,
5: hearing? I'm hearing um, a very heartfelt plea um, for some understanding from Ottawa uh, and also from other provinces. And, and I think that you know, it, it's it's Ottawa's responsibility to bring everyone to the table and work constructively to build the nation, to continue to build the nation. But provinces can also play a role. Like British Columbia needs to ease up on on its opposition to the pipeline. Uh, they've been blocking it in the courts, and I think that that's unwise from my perspective. I've said that that you can't build nations uh, by by um, preventing the landlocked parts uh, from getting their products to uh, tidewater, and that's exactly what British Columbia has been doing, although within the law, but just because it's within the law doesn't mean that it's the right thing to do at this moment in history. We can work around these issues and deal with climate change, as well as uh, the issue of pipeline and, and the need for Alberta to sell its products abroad. And that is something that I think You know, Ottawa takes a a larger share of that responsibility. I can hear the pain in the justice minister's voice. Uh, If I were in his position, I'd be be saying the same thing. Um, But, you know, there are leaders across the country as premiers. Um, You know, what defines you uh, and your tenure in the office uh, can either make you a nation builder or um, someone who obstructs that process of nation building. Mm
0: I received an email from a listener the other day, and I, uh, I told you about it. I just yeah. wanted to share it with our listeners, just a sentence that, that, that arrived. A Calgary. I, I wrote to you, a Calgary listener just today sent an email writing, Alberta and Saskatchewan have no prime minister, and points to both Jason Kenney and Scott Moe having raised concerns about federal policy impact on national unity. Uh, and, and then I, I think about the prime minister in 2015, Mr. Trudeau saying that his five or six days after taking office, that his vision for Canada is a f- as the first post national state. Now, I'll tell you, Premier Desange, if I were leading Wexit, that would be my campaign slogan. I would point to Justin Trudeau and say, this guy doesn't believe in Canada either.
5: Well, those were very um, uh, unwise comments, if I can say that. Um, I mean that's,
0: that's His, not mine, right? His, to, not mine.
5: Um, those are very unwise comments, and I, I actually criticized them because I believe that, that to To continue to build a better Canada, you need cohesiveness, you need equality, you need inclusion. You don't need uh, separate streams, as Mr. Trudeau uh, then posited, that we have many streams in Canada, we have no mainstream. And I think that was a mistake. He he must recognize that, um, that, you know, if there is no mainstream, then there's nothing to join for any Canadian. And and that, you are right, that that. That could be the slogan um, for, for the Wexit, um, if it ever takes off.
0: Unfortunately, it um, would I'll be very effective.
5: It yeah, well, it, it, it could be, but, but the Prime Minister needs to actually revisit that comment. Uh, it would be wise for him, smart for him to revisit it and explain what he really meant, that, that there is something solid in terms of the culture and the values in Canada that holds us together, that we're not just a bunch of provinces strung together, uh, because of the need to be together, that we are there because we believe in some core values and core things as Canadians. And I think it's important to continue to reinforce that.
0: Let me just switch gears in the two minutes we have left and get your thoughts on this international situation that is brewing with uh, the Iranian General Qasem Soleimani having been killed in an airstrike by the Americans. It's not talked about very much, but uh, it is fact that the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, the CODs Force, which he commanded, is officially declared a terrorist organization by the federal government of Canada. That aside, where do we stand? What what worries you about this situation?
5: Well, I think Canada Canada needs to, uh, obviously, the U.S. would do what it would do. They're not going to listen to us, but Canada needs to stand apart. and And obviously, we have said it's a terrorist group, so... If somebody killed killed a terrorist, we are um, uh, not in a position to say it was the wrong thing to do. Um, But what needs to be taken into account is, uh, what are the consequences of this? And that's where my worry is that it's been done. Whatever has been done is done. But now comes the question, how are the Iranians going to retaliate and what the Americans are going to do in response? And that's the worry. Um, there are better minds than mine uh, to talk about that, but that's the biggest worry, and I'm glued to the news and television just thinking about and watching all of this unfold, and it's very serious and troubling for the world at large, not just for Canada.
0: 2020 is going to be quite the year, isn't it? Yes. It really will. Premier, I always uh, always value your coming on the program, and uh, you're a very thoughtful person, and I uh, again, if there were a, a national commission put together to study the issue of national unity. And I think we could use that. Uh, if you chaired it, something very good would come out of it, I think. Thank you so That's much for very your kind time. kind of you. Thank you. Good talking to you again. Bye-bye. Bye. ujal Dussange, the former premier of British Columbia, also the former health minister federally um, in the Jean Chrétien government. Mr. Dussange and I uh, used to go uh, toe-to-toe on the issue of health care and health issues, and we had some very energetic battles on the air, but... I'm telling you, I have so much respect for him as a as a thoughtful person and a devoted, dedicated Canadian. Abide Mont Mayan Four is the president of the Council of Iranian Canadians. He joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Abide, thank you very much for the time. Let me ask you first of all, who makes up the council?
6: Well, thank you for having me. Um Roy, well, yeah, um, well uh, CIC, uh, we are a group of Canadians of the Iranian origin who have been involved in the community in many ways for many years. And uh, the mandate of CIC is um, bridging Canadian values and Charter of Rights um, with Iranian heritage, uh, while at the same time promoting Iranian culture among Canadians in general. And uh, younger Canadian Iranians, in particular, for the evolution of a diverse Canada. And um, we provide services to immigrants for better and effective settlement. And uh, we plan and um, execute cultural events and uh, services for youth, women, and seniors.
0: All right. Now, uh, Toronto has the second largest uh, Iranian population. Of major urban centers in North America, after Los Angeles, yes, uh, yeah. Let, let's talk about your your view and that of the uh, Council of Iranian Canadians of the American military action, which killed the uh, the general Qasem Soleimani, the Iranian general. Your reaction to that is that you. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you're supporting the United States, right?
6: Uh, absolutely, um, basically. Um, We are happy uh, that after 15 years of Islamic Republic spreading its power um, throughout the region while degrading the U.S. uh, strategic position in the Middle East um, and killing tens of thousands of people with impunity, uh, finally uh, the U.S. um, took action against the the threat, and the the Islamic Republic is um, posing to, to the United States the countries in the region and to Canada by extent, and, and the global peace. Um, but what I think is important to understand with Qasem Soleimani's issue being taken out uh, is to understand who he was and what he was doing. Um, the activities of the IRGC uh, Force um, must be considered as an international issue because the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps is everywhere. They have been throughout the East to China, um, to South America, in the Middle East, um, from the uh, assassinations of Iranian dissidents on foreign soil and bombings in Argentina. Now they're generally they're generally
0: seen as a bad group and they've been defined as a as a terrorist organization by the government of Canada and the United States, the the Quds force. But there are also uh, Canadians of Iranian origin or Iranian Canadians who are protesting. The U.S. military strike. Is there a great division within the Iranian-Canadian community over Soleimani's death?
6: um, Unfortunately, there are some Canadian Iranians whose interests are tied with the Iranian regime's interests. And uh, some of them have been literally sent here by the regime on a mission to promote the Iranian regime and paint a better face for the terrorist regime in in the West. Um, but these people use the freedoms we enjoy in a democratic country such as Canada and lobby and support uh, a terrorist entity and regime under their freedom of speech uh, I wonder is supporting terrorists and sympathizing with them freedom of speech to you or
0: uh, do well you need to yeah I, I I'm interested in, yeah, I'm also interested in what you and I'm sorry to push you along because we've we, we squeezed you into the show <laughs> as you know we were trying to do that since yesterday um, there have been calls from your organization and others for the Canadian government to declare the entire Revolutionary Guard a terrorist organization, not just the Kuds part of it, but the entire Revolutionary Guard. What do you? Uh, what's your message to the Prime Minister of Canada as to what he should do now?
6: We think that uh, Canada must support our closest ally, the United States, in fighting terrorism. Uh, Soleimani uh, was a top terrorists in the world, and uh, I think that Canada must support the U.S. in applying the policy of max pressure uh, in uh, regards to the Islamic Republic, uh, using Magnits- Magnitsky law against the architects of terror and oppression of Iranian people and function the Iranian regime's officials uh, because experience has shown that the Iranian regime is golden if we, de- we let go of maximum pressure and if we do not hold them responsible for what they have done um, in respect to the abuse of human rights, and uh, frankly, Canada has become a safe heaven for the Iranian regime officials. They are bringing in the money they steal from Iranian people, and they send their own children to Canada to enjoy a better life, although they have made the Iranian people's lives so miserable. So you're, uh, saying,
0: you're uh, saying the federal bad. government of Canada is not doing nearly enough, and it knows it should be doing more. I hear you saying that.
6: Absolutely, yeah. Uh, um, uh, the the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Court is not listed in its okay. entirety, um, and the, the, we have asked multiple times, um, basically the government to consider that.
0: All right, Avide, I thank you for the time. As I said, we've uh, we've been trying to squeeze you in <coughs> to, well, to the show, you and much. your schedule wasn't really agreeable thank with ours at first. So great to talk to you. Thank you for the time today, and I'm sure we'll talk again.
6: Thank you very much.
0: Bye bye. Avedem Muntman-Far, she is the uh, president of the Council of Iranian Canadians. Now, on the issue of the United States targeted military strike, which killed Iranian General Qasem Soleimani, joining us on the program is Abdurrahim Fukara. He's the Washington Bureau Chief of Al Jazeera. It's been uh, great uh, as far as making time for us on this program over the years is concerned al-Rahim, thank you very much for the time. And uh, how do you assess, as a journalist, what's happened over the last 48 hours?
1: Well, it's uh, uh, a change in the rules of the game between the United States and Iran, particularly in uh, Iraq. I think that's the uh, overall outcome of the killing of uh, Qasim Soleimani. Because up until um, his killing, the understanding uh, between the two sides, formal or informal, is that he would uh, remain uh, immune from assassination. Uh, For a long time, he'd been roaming the Middle East, uh, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, traveling freely, um, organizing Iran's efforts. Uh, um in these countries with regard to um, forces in these countries allied to it but obviously the killing uh, his killing has now terminated those uh, rules and uh, although the the president of the United States is saying that the United States is ready for all possible scenarios one uh, scenario that the uh, Iranians have been talking about over the last 24 hours is reprisal um, against U.S. positions, but they have said that they do not want all out war with the United States. President Trump has also said that within the last 24 hours, but I think it's safe to say that despite all OSH assurances, we are na- now in new territory in the dynamics between Iran and the United States.
0: Should uh, the Iranians have expected a strike against Soleimani, given the fact that there had been the attack on the American embassy in Baghdad, that uh, on the guard houses there was graffiti saying, Soleimani is our leader, and Soleimani came to Baghdad, to that area, uh, the very next, uh, or within the next 36 hours. Uh, And those Apache helicopters that were there, they're not surveillance aircraft, I know they used, or the suspicion is a drone was used, but should the Iranians not have expected something?
1: Well, absolutely. I mean, the the incident of the U.S. embassy in uh, Iraq is obviously a a very serious one. Uh, The implications are very serious. Remember that this is the biggest U.S. um, diplomatic premise anywhere in the world. That's number one. And number two... Attacking the diplomatic missions of any country is obviously a, a flagrant act. But when you look at the assassination of Qasim Soleimani, um you for all the things that uh, all the angry rhetoric that has been coming out of uh, Tehran and all the angry rhetoric that has been coming out of Washington D.C., you would you would have thought that the uh, Iranians would be more prudent than continuing to allow Qasem Soleimani to travel freely. I mean, for the U.S. to have, even if it had breached some sort of red line, agreed formally or informally uh, previously with the Iranians, for them to actually have decapitated this uh, elite force called the, the, the Quds uh, Brigade or the Quds Force, to have decapitated it, it is, is a is a major, major development, bearing in mind that Qasem Soleimani has been the face and, if you like, the brain of uh, Iranian um, military power throughout the, the, the Middle East. So it is a little astonishing that they have allowed that to happen. It is astonishing that they have allowed the U.S. to actually determine exactly where he was going to be and at what time and kill him.
0: And uh, given the fact that uh, the Revolutionary Guard was declared a terrorist organization by the United States not long ago, and the Hutz Force uh, is declared a terrorist organization by this country, so how Canada responds is going to be very interesting. But I'm curious, how are the other countries in the Middle East reacting? Abdurrahim? does Iran have support for action that it may decide to take, even using its proxies?
1: Well, I mean, take Iraq, for example, um, there are obviously people who were very dependent on Iran's uh, support and influence in various parts of uh, uh, Iraq. Um, Iran has consolidated its influence in Iraq post the 2003 U.S. invasion of uh, uh, Iraq. and. There are obviously a lot of uh, people in Iraq who were extremely unhappy about the killing uh, of Qasim Slimani because he is Iranian number one, and because he was killed on Iraqi soil number two. But there are also a lot of people who were who were who were very happy that he's been eliminated because they see him as having helped um, kill a lot of uh, Iraqis. Um, and in other parts of the country, right. in Syria, for example, there are a lot of Syrians who see Iran as having bolstered um, the regime of uh, Syrian President Bashar al-Assad.
0: Abdurrahim Rahim, I hate to, I hate to, do, I hate to do, I hate to do this to you, but I literally have 15 seconds left. Um, please yeah, go ahead.
1: So there are a lot of people who are happy to see him go too.
0: Thanks for the time, Abdurrahim. Rahim. Thanks, Roy. Good talking to you